0: Bethlehem, dark, quiet, a resting town, once bustling, now still, an innkeeper's stable, once calm, now astir, the tender cry of a newborn has pierced through the hush, around a makeshift cradle, A small audience of witnesses gaze upon the baby boy with awe and wonder. This humble infant is the fulfillment of a centuries-old promise. The longed-for Savior is here. Emmanuel is indeed among them. Young mother kneels, overwhelmed by the miracle of his birth. Mere months ago, this child was a prophecy. And now here he lies before her, a reality. For centuries of silence, heaven and nature waited on a promise. This very night, a prophetic chorus resounds as hope is fulfilled. In the lowly city of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, emerges the promised king. Swaddled in that manger lies Jesus, the fulfillment of all David was and yet could not be. Like Mary, we can treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. Humanity now stands with secure assurance, knowing God has not failed us. Hope has come through for us. With the same eyes of awe and wonder, co-witnesses to all that God has done, may our hearts kneel at his manger. Let us look not to gifts of things, but let us turn our attention to the one who is the gift himself, Jesus. Just as the light of his birth broke through the darkness of humanity's waiting, his light daily breaks through the boundless darkness of this weary world. Jesus is the one and only light of the world.
1: evening. You guys doing all right? Yeah. Okay, because it's December, and you know what that means. Uh, it's chilly, yes. In here, it is at least. So out there in the regular Florida, it's still just Florida. Um, you know, I uh, each year as we enter the Christmas season, um, I have the opportunity, as all of us do, to uh, re-enter into the same story, right? I mean, this is the same deal. And, and I've now been journeying through this story in terms of actually diving into it and studying it uh, for well over 20 years, year over year over year uh, in this journey of engaging uh, in this space to be able to unpack this story. And uh, you would think that after uh, year over year over year, eventually you just kind of go, yeah, no, I, I, I get the story, you know, like the shepherds and there's Mary and there's uh, wise men and there's a baby and it's very important. But, but yet, every single time I enter back into this story and this particular point in history, this arrival, I find myself in this space where I, I can't actually quite fathom or quite imagine what it must have been like to be there at the point of this arrival, of Jesus actually arriving on the planet. Have you guys ever played those games where uh, you get the questions, and then one of the questions is always like, if you could go back in history to any point in time and, and be a part of it, which point would you pick? Or would, if you could have breakfast with one historical figure, what, what historical figure would you pick? And, and I will tell you, the, the more I think about where I would want to be in history, and I've got a long list of places I'd love to be, I, I think this place this moment at the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem that night and then the ensuing weeks after that and the events that take place, I think of all the points in history I would love to be, I think I'd love to be here. Because I cannot fathom what it must have been like for these folks to encounter Jesus at this point of arrival. And, and not so much because of the arrival itself exclusively, but because of the collision of this particular arrival and all that they had been waiting for and anticipating to this point. You probably know that the people of Israel um, had been waiting for a very long time for a Messiah. The, The reason they'd been waiting for a Messiah is because their lives were very much like our lives. They lived on this planet and on this planet, they experienced many of the same things we tend to experience They lived a life where the other humans around them were not particularly fun to get along with, right? Uh, In their particular case, it translated into being oppressed under occupation for centuries and centuries and centuries. The people of Israel had found themselves in and out of occupation for as long as the generations had gone back at the point that this occurs. They also, like us, under this space of occupation also experienced the realities of the day-to-day of planet earth their bodies aged like our bodies do they got sick like we get sick they faced the sufferings and strugglings of the realities of lack of resources like we face the struggles of lack of resources they were uncertain like we are uncertain about what the next day would hold And so they lived in this world where, like us, they looked around and they're like, we were constantly struggling with the other humans. We get sick and we struggle and we suffer. We're uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And we're constantly living in this flux of where it's all going to go. And in the Old Testament, in regularity, God would speak to his people and say, one day one is coming who will set all of that right. Who will shift all of that from this experience of occupied, uncertain, struggling, getting sick, suffering, not sure of resources, constantly fighting for the next day to to happen, surviving in some ways. And he will set all of that right and you will no longer have any of those things happen. You will be a nation in a kingdom that he sets up and under that king and with that kingdom... All things will be right. You will be free. You will be certain. You will not struggle or suffer. uh, You will not wonder about what tomorrow holds. You will be safe. I mean, wouldn't you want that? I was a bit confused this morning too when that happened. Because I'm like, wouldn't you want that? And it was like, hmm. Hmm. I was kind of like, are we all like doing that well? And we're like, sure. Well, I mean, I I got, I'm not uncertain about anything. I I don't ever get sick. I don't think I'm growing old. I like the other humans. They're wonderful every day, all the time. And I don't really, no, I mean, like I would want that. And then at the point of this encounter, you have to remember that the people that show up in this particular moment in history, When they showed up at the birth of Jesus, they weren't showing up there wondering if he might be the child, if he might be the savior. They weren't kind of going, I feel like this might be the one. They knew he was. Why did they know he was? Because they were guessing at it? Because they had a feeling and intuition? No, because they had supernatural encounters with another world that came and told them. Think about Mary, right? I mean, Mary had encountered Gabriel, an angel who showed up in her town. And this is what he told her. Hey, Mary, you are going to have a child begin to grow in your womb and it shouldn't be possible. So I'm just saying that's kind of a big deal, right? And then he didn't just say, it's going to be a child. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You're going to have to guess. No, he said to her, this child that is being conceived in your womb is the one, the the promised Messiah. So did Mary know who it was she was birthing? That would be a yes. It's not a trick question, I promise you. It's just a straight up yes. And when the shepherds went down into Bethlehem to go and meet the child, Was it because uh, on every Friday morning they kind of made a trip to Bethlehem in case the child was born that week? Did they like sit around like, hey guys, it's Friday. We should roll into Bethlehem. Who knows? We might find a child and it might be the Messiah. No, what happened? They were sitting in their fields and angels in mass showed up and said, go into Bethlehem. The Messiah is there and you need to go meet him. When they showed up, they knew exactly who they were encountering. The wise men that came and met Jesus, they knew exactly who they were encountering. Simeon, when he was holding the baby just a little while after the birth, and he was blessing this baby, remember that God spoke to him and said, this child you're holding is the one I told you you would hold before you die, the Messiah. See, every single person that encountered Jesus during this time, they encountered a baby that they knew was the Messiah because they had been told in some supernatural fashion. And they had been waiting for this Messiah to fulfill the promises that the scriptures had said would be fulfilled through this Messiah. So when we say Jesus embodied hope or Jesus fulfilled hope for these people, does it make sense that he was the embodiment of hope or the fulfiller of hope? Well, yeah, because what does it mean that someone fulfills hope? Listen to this. This is the dictionary definition of hope. The feeling that what is wanted can be had. The dictionary definition of hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had. So what happens when what you've wanted, what you've longed for is suddenly realized? That's not hope any longer. That is the fulfillment of hope. That is the embodiment of hope. Jesus was the one that said, as he showed up, everything you've felt that you wanted, that you would have, you now have. Because I'm here. That's a big deal. And then, as Jesus grew into adulthood, the people that encountered Jesus on this planet they had the same experience, this tangible experience of Jesus showing up and fulfilling their hope. So they had hope. They had a feeling that what they wanted would be realized. And then Jesus showed up and he realized it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when they said, when, if you'd encounter them, is Jesus your hope? They would have said, Yes, because they had an experience of that. When Jesus showed up in towns, we read in the Gospels that he would show up. And when he would teach, he would teach with such profound authority, such incredible wisdom. He would teach such newness that the people in regularity throughout the Gospels would say, Who is this man that he teaches with absolute authority, with profound wisdom, beyond anything we've ever heard from anybody else. So their encounters with Jesus is that he was bringing to them realities, expressions of the kingdom of God in a way they could never have fathomed before. Almost as though he knew of this kingdom personally. And he didn't just teach with authority. He also expressed his power in meeting the felt needs of the people. He would heal people of their ailments. He would feed them when they were hungry. He would meet their needs when they had needs. In fact, very often in the Gospels, it said he would go into a town and he would heal many. So many people would experience uh, the, the relief from their physical ailments, from their diseases and struggles. And so if you were walking around during Jesus's time and you encountered people of that time who had encountered Jesus, I think it would not have been strange for you to hear them say, Jesus is my hope. Jesus is the light of the world. He brings light to me. Jesus fulfills the promises we've been longing for and hoping for. Because he freed them from their circumstances that they struggled in. And he was the one rising who they knew would set them free from oppression. Now, their belief was oppression from Rome. And their experience was from the circumstances of their day. But boy, that is an embodiment of hope. And so I think often about that. These incredible encounters that Jesus had with people, healing them and changing them. And when we say Jesus is the hope of the world, it makes sense. But then we leap forward into the 21st century. We come here, here where we are today. Welcome, welcome. And Jesus is still the hope of the world, right? He's still the light of the world, right? I agree. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, when I come here to the 21st century, I feel a bit like sometimes when I try to connect to the reality that Jesus is the hope of the world, like they connected to it, I struggle. Because I feel like my experience of Jesus being the hope of the world is more like the people in, experienced him before his arrival than like the people experienced him at his arrival or after. What do I mean? Before his arrival, did people believe the Messiah was coming? Yes, and did they have great hope in him? Yes, would they have said he is our hope? Yes, but a what hope? A future hope. When he comes, he will set us free. And I feel like for me, for us, very often, when we talk about Jesus being our hope, we talk about that in light of our future. So what we say is, I'm living right here right now on this planet in these circumstances and because I know Jesus, I have eternal life and I have a promise of a kingdom that will come that when that kingdom is set up and I experience it, I will no longer struggle with disease. I will no longer be uncertain. I will no longer be under oppression. I will no longer be in places where suffering occurs. I will have all those things I want. But in the meantime, while I wait for this eternal life, I'm right here on planet Earth, stuck in the middle of these circumstances, uncertain, oppressed, struggling, and suffering. And so as much as I would love to say, oh man, my experience is like the people that encountered his arrival and like the people of his adulthood where I just look and I go, today, right here in the immediacy, he is my hope. I'm not sure how to attach to that. And this is what begins to stir in my wonderings in my mind. And so I explored, is there an answer? To the question, how is Jesus not just my hope for my future so that I can endure my present? But is he in fact my hope for my present right here and my future? Can I say with authenticity, Jesus is my hope now, here, right here, not just in the future as I look ahead. And it turns out that the answer in scripture for how I here in the 21st century encounter Jesus as my hope, not just for my future, but in my present is in the same encounters that he had while he was an adult on this planet. It's just that the first glance of those encounters are often in the space of circumstance. And so we tend to pay attention to the circumstance because they are what feel most miraculous. Someone couldn't walk, now they can walk. Someone couldn't see, now they can see. Someone was hungry, now they're not. Wow! But what we discover in Scripture is that in those encounters, something else was occurring. And by the time the authors of the New Testament write, they are not writing about the circumstantial change that Jesus effected on a human life. They are writing about something far bigger and far deeper and far more profound in those encounters. That when we look at those encounters, we see it. And it is in that space where Jesus was doing something bigger than just changing someone's circumstance that we begin to go, oh, he does that here now too. And that's where he is, my hope. The clues begin as early as Jesus meeting his first disciples. So when he met the disciples, he showed up and these guys uh, were uh, involved in ordinary jobs, right? I mean, they were doing Like regular stuff like us humans do. Uh, They needed to provide for their families. And back in that day, you didn't just get a job so you can have money so you can go to the grocery store. Sometimes you had to kill your food, right? So you either had to make some money to buy what somebody else killed or you had to go kill it yourself. So you had to fish, you had to hunt, you had to go go find food. So a lot of these guys uh, were carpenters or tax collectors or people like that. But many of them were actually people that were involved in the collection of food. And many of the disciples particularly collected what? Fish, that's right, they were fishermen. And when Jesus first encountered them, do you remember what he would often say to those guys that were fishermen? He'd get to them and he would say, hey guys, I am up to some pretty crazy cool things. I'm gonna go do some stuff and I want you to come and follow me. I want you to abandon the job that provides for your well-being, and I want you to come with me. Because I am going to take you who are currently fishermen and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, whenever we hear that stuff, I think we figure that the disciples just immediately understood everything Jesus said, you know, because because we do. Because when we read it, we're like, oh, I know what that means. Evangelism. It's beautiful. Those guys had no context. Can you imagine like Peter and John? Like, you have any idea what he means? I don't know, dude. I mean, fishers of men, whatever. But it seems pretty cool. Uh, He seems really wise. We should go with him. Like, I don't think they had any idea what it meant that they would be fishers of men. But by the time we encounter the disciples later on after the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything about them is other than when we found them when they first started following Jesus. When they first started following Jesus, they were regular fishermen. And by the time Jesus dies and resurrects, they are fishers of men. Everything about them is different. See, what we begin to discover about Jesus is that when people encountered him, he didn't just change things around them, circumstances or things externally of them, uh, ailments, More often than not, in fact, always in his encounters, the thing that was most profound is what he changed inside of them. He moved them from being one thing to being an utterly other thing. He changed their identity. Do you guys remember when Jesus encountered the woman at the well? You know, he shows up and there's this woman. She's already an outcast as far as the people of God go because she's a Samaritan. Then within her context of the Samaritan world, she is an outcast there because she has a shady past, a bunch of husbands and stuff going on. So she is at the bottom of the pole positionally. As far as her position in society, she is down here someone. And her identity is, I am a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands. A broken and scary identity. She shows up at this well alone because she doesn't want to be around people. And there is the person that in their society sits on the other end of that spectrum, a rabbi. I mean, righteousness personified, wisdom embodied, everything you want to be. And then broken woman, five husbands, Samaritan. And they start a conversation and it's awkward. And quickly, the Samaritan woman realizes that this rabbi knows stuff about her. And that's kind of a scary place. But then as the conversation continues, what does Jesus do? He starts talking to her about what it would be like to drink water that is his water. And that when you get to know me, something that comes into you changes everything, and you change. And by the time the conversation's over, do you remember? The woman goes back to her town, tells everyone about Jesus, and they all come and meet him. See, in a single encounter with Jesus, that woman forgot who she knew she was when she showed up at the well and began to understand and experience who she was through the eyes of the one who was called Jesus. When Jesus encountered the woman caught in adultery. When she showed up. Do you remember what he did? What were they going to do to her? Stone her. They were going to kill her. Did he stop the stoning? Well, he, he did eventually, right? Did they stone her? Did she die? Nope. Was she saved? Did he save her life? Yes. Is that awesome? Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes. Do we, do we, are we glad? Do you think she's glad that her life was saved? Yes, not a trick question. Yes, it's awesome. She saved her life. Would that have been enough? Like, well, uh, you, you okay? I think so. Good, well, they're not throwing anything, so off you go now. But what does he do? He gets down and he asks her a very strange question. Woman, you know who you are. You know what you've done. Is there anyone around here that is holding you to that position, that personhood? Is anyone condemning you? And what does she say? I I, I, I don't think so. I, I think they're all gone. And then what does he say? Neither do I. The person you know you are, that adulterous woman caught, brought here for justice, that is not the woman I see in front of me. I am making you new. And then what does he say to her? Now go and live other. Live differently. Sin no more. Go be free. You remember the paralytic guy that, that's lowered down from the roof? This is one of my favorite stories. Uh, when I die, I got questions about this story. I'm there straight to Jesus and be like, okay, got, got some questions. I'm gonna to go to the paralytic, and I've got some questions for him as well. He's not paralytic anymore, but I got some questions. So when he came down, do you remember what happened? Why did they lower him down from the roof? What did he want? to walk okay i promise you i'm not trying to trick you guys okay he came because he can't walk and he wanted to walk and when he's lowered down and jesus sees him do you remember what jesus said to him your sins are forgiven Okay, so what does he do? This man comes down in that cultural context. If you couldn't walk, especially if you were born that way, the question was always, what did you do wrong, right? So he has an identity and his identity is, I am broken in some way. And when he shows up with Jesus, Jesus says, I see you, your sins are taken care of. Who you were coming down into this room, you are no longer. And then here's what fascinates me. Does Jesus then say, walk? No, he doesn't. Do you remember what happens? That's where the conversation kind of ends. And then the Pharisees are like, who is he to forgive sins? This is ridiculous. This guy's crazy. And Jesus hears or perceives it. And what does he say? That's when he says, guys, do you think it's harder to forgive sins or make a guy walk? They can't walk. And then he goes, you know what? Here, watch this. You, You can walk now. See, my question for Jesus is, if the Pharisees weren't there, would you have had the guy walk? Or was it enough that you just said, your sins are forgiven? I want to ask the guy, once he said, you're free, your sins are forgiven, did you even care whether you would walk or not? Because I suspect the guy's going to say, I kind of forgot I couldn't walk. It was kind of a surprise when he was like, you get up. But the reason Jesus told him to walk was not because he needed to walk, but because the Pharisees needed to see him walk. See, what Jesus continues to demonstrate is that the most profound reality of him was not what he gave people in their circumstances, in their suffering, in their oppression. It is what he changed in people that made them utterly new. And in that change, something extraordinary happens. We'll get to that in a second. Do you guys remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus needed nothing from Jesus as far as this world is concerned, right? He was wealthy. He was well-positioned. He was not sick. He was not in trouble. He didn't come to Jesus desperate as far as he was concerned. All he wanted to do was what? See him. He's like, I want not see the guy. And Jesus stops and says, hey, Zacchaeus, you better run on along because I'm coming to your place. I hope it's ready. And Zacchaeus is like, what? And then a conversation ensues in that house. And this man who accumulated his wealth by cheating the people around him, who had gotten used to a way of life so much that he was like, that's what I am, chief tax collector. In a single conversation, Jesus turns that upside down and he switches everything, changes everything. And that man lives differently from that point forward. But Jesus does not change one single circumstance for Zacchaeus. He just shows Zacchaeus that he is not who he was when he showed up in front of Jesus. Was the woman adulterous when she showed up in front of Jesus? Yes. Was the woman at the well a a broken woman with a bunch of husbands not doing? Yes. Was Zacchaeus a cheating, stealing tax collector? Yes. Every one of these encounters, when the person showed up, they were exactly what they thought they were. But when they were done with Jesus, they were utterly not. You see, what I begin to discover is that what is far more powerful than anything in changing our circumstances is actually when things change inside of us and our identity shifts. When we move from being what we think we are to being something better, something bigger, something other, it changes the entire way we see, experience, and express in life. The world seems to know this just as well as anybody. It doesn't just take Christians to know this. Humans innately know this. Our storylines that are the most powerful play in the space. We don't typically write stories that are the most powerful, just about circumstantial change. The stories we love watching, the stories that change us, are stories where a person discovers what? Who they are. My favorite of all storylines is Alice in Wonderland. My very favorite. And my favorite version of Alice in Wonderland is The Matrix, because The Matrix is just the sci-fi version of Alice in Wonderland. For some of you, you just went like, what? Go watch it. I promise it is. So The Matrix is my favorite movie. And The Matrix 4 is coming out this December on the 22nd, and they haven't released tickets yet, and I'm getting nervous. And so because The Matrix, what's that? HBO, I know it, I know it, but I wanna see this one in the theaters because it's The Matrix 4! Um, so I wanna go see that, and so I have been on a journey reacquainting uh, myself with the matrix movies and i watched the first matrix movie this week uh acquainting my uh, young adult daughters to this movie because i'm like have you guys seen the matrix and they were like no and i'm like you cannot be a vander and live in this house and not not seen the matrix that is in- inappropriate in every way and so we watched the matrix this week and it was just as good as the other 497 times i've watched that movie because the gospel themes in that thing are incredible that's why i love the movie now watch In that movie, just like in Alice in Wonderland, the main character, whose name is Mr. Anderson in everyday life, is also known as Neo as his sort of hacker alias the the behind-the-scenes, what he does in the computer world. Now, in the movie The Matrix, it turns out that the world that he lives in is actually a big, giant computer world. So what we need in order to save humans from the Matrix that they're stuck in is a computer genius. Are you with me so far? But Neo doesn't know any of this. And so he encounters Morpheus, who is the wise sage. And Morpheus begins the journey of showing him who he is really is not mr anderson but neo the one who can change the world not mr anderson the regular computer programmer but neo the one who can change the world there is a scene in the movie where neo is beginning to learn that he is much more than he thought he was and morpheus is having a conversation with him and neo asks him are you saying that someday if i keep learning i'll be able to dodge bullets and morpheus says no I'm saying in the future you won't have to. Now what that means, spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen it by now, it's been out for 20 years. That's on you, right? (laughs) At the end of the movie, the agents that are the bad guys shoot at Neo and the bullets are coming at him and he doesn't dodge the bullets. He just puts his hand up and the bullets stop in the air and he picks them out of the air because once he realizes who he actually is and who he was made to be, it changes everything. Now, Here's the scene I want to bring to your attention. I would play it for you, but it's in the middle of a fight. And some of you might be like, oh, it's a fight. So I'll just describe it for you. Neo is fighting one of the bad agents and they're very powerful dudes. And no regular person has been able to fight these guys in the past. And this agent has him on a train track holding him down after a big fight, and Neo has lost the fight. And a train is coming their way, and the agent is showing Neo that he's going to die. Do you know what the agent keeps calling Neo? Mr. Anderson. From the beginning of the fight all the way through, he says, hello, Mr. Anderson. As they're fighting, he calls him Mr. Anderson. And then when they're on the train track and he's holding him in a headlock and the train's coming and he's going to die, he says, Mr. Anderson, look at the inevitability of your death. See, what the enemy was doing to Mr. Anderson was trying to remind him that he was nothing but Mr. Anderson the ordinary computer programmer who just spun his wheels. But he had to come to a place where he realized that he was more than Mr. Anderson. He was Neo. And he sits on those train tracks. That's my favorite scene in the movie. Well, one of the 26 of my favorite scenes in the movie. And this is what Neo says. He he stops, the train's coming, and he says, My name is... Mr. Neo. And then he launches up and he throws the agent off his shoulders and the agent dies in the train and he makes it. Spoiler alert again. You see, the world knows that the most powerful thing that could happen to us as humans is when we begin the journey of changing from who we think we are to who we could be. The trouble is we are what we think we are. We cannot change ourselves, but when we encounter Jesus, what does he do? He changes us. I have a complicated family. I have eight kids, so there it is. That's complicated enough. (laughs) Except that in addition to having eight kids, four of my kids entered our family through birth and four of my kids entered our family through adoption. My wife entered through marriage and I entered through marriage. So we have three different entry points into our family. In the world, the world typically says birth is the best way into a family and the most profound, but that's the world's version, not our God's, Uh, kingdom version, entry into a family through any of those means is valid. And when you come into a family, when we first started our family as a whole, my four adopted kids came into our family with my four biological kids and they collided when they were 14, 12, 12, 10, 10, 8, 8, 6. And I always tell people that what that felt like was like two tractor trailers driving at each other at 100 miles an hour with the hope that when they collide, it would turn into one big magical tractor trailer. Do you know what happens when two tractor trailers collide? It doesn't turn into one. It turns into a giant, disastrous mess of death and fire, which is pretty much what the last decade of our family has felt like in many ways, is a constant experience of what that integration and collision looks like. So, On a day-to-day basis, if you were in my home, depending on the day, you might say, our family's pretty awesome. And depending on the day, you might say, our family is completely psychotic. Just depends on which day you show up. Depends on which hour you show up. So our circumstances in our home change regularly. Sometimes I look at my kids and I just think to myself, these are wonderful humans and I love them. And sometimes I look at my kids and I think to myself, I would give almost anything to move out of this house and go be alone forever because I hate them. And I know that they feel exactly the same way about me. And so on a day-to-day basis, things change in our home circumstantially all the time. But what we are fighting toward is not to figure out how we can manage the circumstances in such a way that we can have order in our home every day. My wife's personality typically leans into those spaces of order and control. So she has tried for a solid decade to run that course. If we can just manage every piece of this home perfectly, then everyone will be okay. And it doesn't work. I manage with dysfunctional optimism. That doesn't work either. So what we've come to realize is that what it is that we are longing for, fighting for, and moving toward is the place... Where everyone in our home will recognize with clarity that they belong to a family and they will know who they are in this family. I am son, I am daughter, I am father, I am mother. Because when you recognize who you are, then in that space, you begin to be able to encounter the family in freedom. My kids, in regularity, when they encounter me or Brooke, my wife, and we don't give them what they want, can I go to my friend's birthday party? Not this weekend. We're too busy. This is what I get all the time. Oh my goodness. You never let us do anything. You never give us what you want. Can I have 20 bucks? Not right now. You never give us. You know what I want to do every time I encounter my kids that are kind of like on that space? I want to print out the budget for them. It's like hundreds of pages. I want to show them. If I didn't have you, I could have seven Ferraris. Do have any idea how much we invest in you? I want to pull the carpool schedule out and I want to show them. There's this thing called a life. I used to have it. And then you all came along and I have given my life away so that you have a life. So when you say, oh, you never give me anything. That's ridiculous. See, all of those encounters are because we forget what it is like to belong to a people that care about us and are good to us. But when you do, my children, who are now young adults, it's kind of fun to watch. They're spanning into that, like, early 20s, and they're beginning to reemerge, like, oh, I think you were really good to me. And I'm like, we were. And they're starting to realize, like, oh, having my own apartment and paying for gas is crazy. You had eight kids out, and you knew it. And they were able to say, you're right, we barely survived. What's beginning to happen is that they're beginning to realize, oh my gosh, being part of this family really has afforded us both biological and adopted extraordinary things. Not because my parents could just give us a roof over our head or pay for our bills, but because we were loved, because we were safe, because we were in a place that had our well-being in mind. In Scripture... What you will discover that the early New Testament authors do constantly is to show us that the most profound reality of encountering Jesus is not that he changes our circumstances, though he sometimes does. And he sometimes doesn't. But it is that he changes us. And when he changes us, everything changes. Because when we have an awakening to who we really are and who we really belong to, it changes the way we encounter everything else listen to this 2nd uh, corinthians chapter 5 listen to what paul writes oops this way 2nd corinthians 5:17 listen therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come so what do we find out in scripture what happens to us when we encounter jesus We become new. Now, what does that mean? I'm new. What am I? I was once something. Now I'm something else. Can you tell me what I am? Actually, yes. Because the same author who authored 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or all of the Corinthians also authored the book of Ephesians. And listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You and I are now part of a story where we are a holy thing. We are a holy thing, being built into a holy thing. Whatever you once were, you are now this. Peter puts it a different way when he writes in uh, his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to this, verse 9, "'But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession.'" that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, what we begin to find out in scripture is that we are told, we are shown through the encounters we have with Jesus and his word, That the world we live in is a world that we no longer belong to. And because we no longer belong to it, we realize that the things of this world that once were the things we hoped God would give us so we would be okay are not the things that make us okay anymore. In fact we come to realize that the difficult things of this, this world are not to be endured only until we have our future, but they are in fact things that are being utilized by this God we love, this Father we now have, not only to simply be but to shape us into a greater likeness of who he is so here's what he does he first changes us and shows us that the world we live in is temporal we no longer belong to it and so therefore we can now live transcendent of it and when we do encounter the things in it they will be used to make us more like the one we already are like Because our true freedom is going to come when we are most like Jesus. And so our well-being is most realized when we are most like Jesus. You see, when we come to understand who we are, listen carefully now. It is not that we don't live in the circumstances of the world anymore. It's that we don't live under them. We once lived under them. They did things to us and we couldn't figure out how to undo those things. But now we're told, one, they are temporal. And two, what they will do is produce beautiful things. Listen, listen to this. Romans chapter 5. Listen to what it says. Same author, Paul again. And he says this about the world we now live in and the world we're part of. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So is that what? That's our future. Is our future secure? Yes. Now listen to this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, our circumstances, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, who he has given to us. So what he's saying is, folks, listen where you once thought your greatest tangible experience of Jesus being your hope was that he would change your circumstances because you looked back at the people that encountered him as an adult and he did it for them and you thought, boy, wouldn't that be cool? That's not actually your greatest incredible thing. Your greatest incredible thing is that he's changed you. And because you are changed, this world is no longer something that you experience the same way. You now understand things about this world, experience things about this world, and walk through things in this world differently because you are different. And that's where we encounter what it means that Jesus is our hope. It's not that he gives us hope only, he does, but it's that he is our hope, why? Because what gives us hope every day is not that things will change, but that we now know who we are in him and therefore everything has changed. And I don't live in that in some future reality. I live in that when, right now, as I walk out of these doors, I don't know what I'm gonna encounter, but I know that whatever it is because of who I am, I will encounter it differently than I would have if I was still the old Renault without Jesus. So Jesus is in fact my hope when, right now. Because who made me who I am now? He did. And who tells me who I am now? He does. So when I leave here to be the person that I know I am now, I need to constantly remember who he is, who he said I am, and live in that. So what is our job this Christmas? As we enter the Christmas season and we start with this, Jesus is the light of the world. He is our hope. Our calling is to remember who we are in Christ. Because that's where he is, in fact, today, our hope. Think of it this way What is the sentence you need to say that is like the one Neo said? My name is what? Is it, my name is child of God, my name is holy priesthood, my name is royal nation, my name is temple of God, my name is person of God, my name is child of God? Pick it, there's a whole list. But why don't you spend the rest of this week like me, each day finding a new thing to plug into that sentence, when everything about this world says, you just Renault, you just Renault, look at you, you just Renault. I want to be able to say, ah, <laughs> I am not Mr. Anderson. My name is Son of God. And then in that space, I want to close my eyes and remember, I once was nothing but Renault, but I am so much more now because I encountered Jesus and he made me something new. And it is in that newness that this world has forever changed for me. It cannot any longer hold me down because I don't live under it, though I do live in it, because I now know who I am, what kingdom I belong to, and who it is that I serve. And that is my hope. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the extraordinary wonder Of all that you have done for us as a human race and for me as a person. That you came not only to change the external circumstances of your people, but more importantly and profoundly to change the internal identity of your people. So that in becoming utterly new, everything would change instead of just something. Instead of just one circumstance changing, one moment becoming different because you are there in that village on that day and you make me not sick or you make me not hungry. When you changed my identity, you changed everything. So that now, even when I'm in danger, I'm safe. Even when I'm in prison, I'm free. Even when I'm dying, I'm alive. God, you have changed everything because you have changed me. And I pray this Christmas that what I will remember is that my hope is not found in what you do for me or give to me. It is found in who you have made me and who you are because I find myself in you. God, help us to become a people that stand firmly in who you are and who you've said we are. And trust in that space that you will allow us to experience the day-to-day circumstances we find ourselves in utterly differently. God, when you change things for us, may that be the cherry on top of the cake and not the cake. May the cake be who we now are in you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this season. We thank you that you are indeed our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.